Well, I guess it's about time. Good morning. morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. My name is Stephen Bohr, and the title of this seminar is Exonerating God. So if that's not the seminar you're looking for, (laughs) now is the time to know it. Um, As you came in, I think that you received a material. Uh, This is a group of quotations that I've gathered uh, through the course of many years where Ellen White describes uh, the cosmic conflict, the great controversy on a broader scale than just this world. And we're going to be referring to several of those uh, quotations as we move along in our study together. Um, This is all of the material that I'm going to give out in the seminar. Uh, So you might want to take notes. Actually, it'd be pretty practical to take notes on the back side of this material. That way you'll have it all together. I am going to refer to many, many Bible verses. Uh, In fact, we're going to begin our study by referring abundantly to the Bible and then referring to some of these quotations from Ellen White. Before we do begin, however, we want to ask God's blessing. We should never open the Word of God without uh, first imploring the Lord's guidance. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome opportunity of being here at GYC. What an energizing experience. It's so wonderful to be uh, among a group of people who are truly serious about finishing your work on this earth so we can go home. And Father, as we open this seminar about the plan of salvation and the great controversy, we ask, Lord, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We know that human wisdom is insufficient to grasp the great truths of the plan of salvation. So we ask for divine wisdom. We thank you, Father, for the promise that you have given us that you will be with us always, even unto the end of the world. And we claim that promise this this morning. And we thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. If I ask you... What is the central purpose of the plan of salvation? Probably, if you're like most people that I've asked this question of, you would say that the purpose of the plan of salvation was, of course, to save man, to save the human race. But we're going to notice in this seminar that the plan of salvation has a much broader reach than the salvation of man. We're going to notice that really the plan of salvation in its broadest sense has the purpose of exonerating God or vindicating God from the accusations that Satan has launched against him. And specifically that Satan has launched against the law of God which means that these accusations are launched against the character of God because the law of God is a reflection of God's character. So when the devil attacks the law, he's attacking God's character because the law is a reflection or uh, a written description, if you please, of what God is in himself. Now I'd like to begin, and we're going to read the Bible abundantly, in our two sessions this morning. 
and I hope that you'll stick around till the end. If you just stay for an hour, uh, you're only going to see the initial steps in the argument that we're going to be building. We're going to follow the plan of salvation from the origin of sin in heaven all the way till the moment that sin is eradicated from the universe uh, at the end of the millennium. So if you don't stay all the way through, you're going to have a very partial picture. Uh, this morning, we're going to deal primarily with a problem because God has a big problem on his hands. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. Ezekiel, chapter 28. Of course, we all know that this uh, chapter describes uh, Lucifer. And uh, let's begin our reading at verse 13. 28 and verse 13. Speaking about uh, this glorious being... It says here, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Have you ever read in the writings of Ellen White that actually Eden was a little uh, piece of heaven transplanted upon the earth and that before the flood God took the garden of Eden back to heaven? Uh, Well, here we have an indication that Eden was in heaven before it was on earth because here we're told that before Lucifer sinned, he was in Eden, the garden of God. Of course, he came to the Garden of Eden after he sinned, when it was on earth. So it says, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now uh, comes the key verse that I want us to uh, consider for a moment. You were the anointed cherub who covers. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the mountain, on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So we find that this being was the covering cherub. Now let's go to Exodus and find a description of who the covering cherub was and where he was located. Exodus 25 and beginning with verse 18. Exodus 25 and verse 18. This is talking about the earthly sanctuary. And God is giving Moses instructions on uh, building the Ark of the Covenant. And it says in verse 18, And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. So where were the covering cherubs? They were in the most holy place on either side of of the what? Of the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law of God. Now, in what direction were the uh, cherubim looking? They were looking downward. And their wings were folded. Ellen White says, in sign of reverence for God's law. Which, by the way, is at the bottom of the Ark of the Covenant because it's the foundation of God's throne. And so it continues saying in verse 20, 
And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. That's why they are called the cover, he is called the covering cherub. Because the cherubs extended their wings and they covered the mercy seat. And of course the mercy seat was the lid of the ark and that's where the Shekinah descended. It represents the throne of God and the, the Ten Commandments are underneath there, the foundation of God's throne. And of course the cherubim are looking down and they have their wings folded in reverence for God and for His holy law. Now, let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 at verses 12 through 14. We just found in Ezekiel 28 that um, iniquity was found in this covering cherub. What was that iniquity? Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you, were, you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and now I'm going to underline one, a one-letter word that appears several times here. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. What was Lucifer's problem? Eye problem. He had an eye problem. It's called myopia. <laughs> Nearsightedness. He could only see himself. Now, I'm going to give you some, uh, some words, and I want you to give me the opposite, or the antonym. Good? Bad. Okay. Hot? Cold. Light? Dark. Love? Hate. I knew you were going to say that. No. No. <laughs> we naturally would say love, hate. But really, the opposite of love is self. When you really think of it. Because love moves outward. Self-love moves inward. So the opposite of love is self. What was Lucifer's great sin? Selfishness. By the way, is selfishness a total violation of the two tables of the law? You shall love the Lord your God. And you shall love your what? Your neighbor as yourself. Not yourself. First, you shall love your neighbor and you shall love God. What was the problem with Lucifer? Lucifer loved himself, which is a contradiction of God's holy law. Now, let's go back to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. And I want you to notice a very important little word here. Ezekiel 28 and verse 16. It says, By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within and you... And you what? And you sinned. So, did Lucifer sin? 
he most certainly sinned. Now, let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from Mount Sinai. Is that what it says? For, for the devil has sinned from when? From the beginning. So when did sin begin? Did sin begin on earth or did it begin in heaven? It began in heaven. Now the question is, what was the sin that he committed? Let's go back to verse 4. Same context. Whoever commits sin also commits what? Lawlessness. I'm reading from the New King James. The King James Version says, He who sins transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Are you starting to put everything together? Did Lucifer sin? He most certainly did sin. Uh, was there a law inside the Ark of the Covenant? To break? Of course. The earthly sanctuary was a copy of the heavenly. Actually, it was a copy of a little scale model of the heavenly. Moses was not shown the heavenly sanctuary. He was shown a scale model of the heavenly sanctuary. God said, make it according to the model that I've shown you in the mount. But the one on the mount was a scale model much smaller than the reality, the one in heaven. So on earth you have the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments. So in heaven you must also have in the Ark of the Covenant the Ten Commandments and you must have the covering cherubs. And so it says here that he sinned. And sin is what? Breaking God's holy law. That was what Lucifer did in heaven. He broke, he made an attack against God's holy law. We're going to notice that everything in the great controversy revolves around the law of God. The accusations of Satan are related to the law of God and God's solution is a solution that relates to the law of God. We'll come to that a little bit later. Now, Lucifer, of course, to extend his rebellion, needed followers. And so I want you to notice what the devil did in heaven. Go with me to John chapter 8 and verse 44. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Here Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders of his day and age. And he says this. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So what is the devil? A liar. Now, in order to be a liar, do you have to have someone to lie to? Of course. Did the devil lie about God in heaven? Yes, he did. Let's go back to Ezekiel 28 and take a look at this. Ezekiel 28. All of these passages deal with the origin of sin. 
Ezekiel 28 and verse 16, once again. And there's a very important little word here that I want to underline. Ezekiel 28, 16. It says, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Now, what does that word trading mean? By the abundance of your trading. That's a commercial term, isn't it? Isn't trading a commercial term? Now, the question is, merchandise, yeah, the, the King James says merchandise. So, 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 here, we're told that Satan is trying to sell something. What is he trying to sell? The Bible says that he was a liar from the beginning. Now, let's go to a couple of verses where this same Hebrew root word is used, the word trading or merchandise, but it's not translated the same way. Go with me to Leviticus 19 and verse 16. Leviticus 19 and verse 16. Very same Hebrew root of the Hebrew word. You shall not go about as a talebearer. Same Hebrew word, the same root. You shall not what? Go about as a talebearer among your people. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So, the word merchandise means to try and sell what? Tales. By the way, when somebody tries to tell you something and you don't believe it, what do you say? I don't buy that. So we still have remnants of the idea. I don't buy that. Or you can't sell me that one. What is the devil trying to sell? He's trying to sell his lies about whom? About God and his law. Now, let's go to the other uh, text that uses this root word. Ezekiel 22 and verse 9. Ezekiel 22 and verse 9. Here it's translated a little differently, but it's the same root. It says here, In you are men who slander. That's the same root. Who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst they commit lewdness. So here you have the word slander. Tail-bearing slander. What is slander? Yeah, it's talking about somebody else, but is it saying something true about someone else, or is it saying something false about someone else? It's, it's bearing false witness. Carry tales. Yeah, carry tales, that's right. Tale bearer, or carrying tales. And by the way, a tale is not a real-to-life story. A tale, we talk about fairy tales, you know, they, they really didn't happen. So, so what is Lucifer doing? He's a liar from the beginning. He's bearing tales. He's slandering. Who is he slandering? He's slandering God. Well, he's still doing it today. What was he slandering God about? Born in sin and it's hard to see 
Yeah. 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 And we and we say sometimes God's law, you know, it restricts our freedom. It, you know, it, it kind of binds us. It, and that's the identical thing that the devil said in heaven. Yeah, you know, it would help if we, if when we read the word law, we thought of character, because it has to do more with a person. You know, um, I preached at the Southwest um, uh, Youth Conference uh, a while back, and uh, there's a sermon that you can get on Audioverse. The title of it is uh, "The Law of Relationships," where I deal with the issue of how the law relates to the character of God. And when, when the Bible says that God wants to write his law in our hearts, he's saying that he wants to write his character in our hearts. You know, that makes a big difference. Because the, we think of law as a code, as a cold list of rules. But when you think of character, you're thinking of what a person is. You're thinking about the person. And so really, when Lucifer is attacking the law, he's really attacking what? He's attacking God's character because the law is a written description of who God is. Are you with me? Amen. So Lucifer sinned. And sin is what? Transgression of the law. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 12. By the way, is heaven involved in the great controversy? What is the devil trying to do? He's trying to give God a black eye, isn't he? And he's he's trying to give him a black eye in heaven before he does on earth. So must God do something to resolve the discrepancies and problems in heaven too? See, the, contra- the solution to the controversy is not only a, a, an earthly solution. It must involve a solution to the doubts that Lucifer planted about God in heaven. And this is the unique contribution of Adventist theology to the idea of the plan of salvation. You know, you ask most people outside the Adventist church to say, Why did Jesus come to this world? Well, he came to save me. That's a very restricted view of the purpose of the plan of salvation. The purpose of the plan of salvation is to answer Satan's accusations and to vindicate God's character before the universe. Amen. And in the process, we are saved. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, what's going to happen, and, and we're going to talk about this in our session tomorrow because I'm going to deal with the Adventist view of judgment. Um, you know, you've, if you've seen the People's Court, at the end of the program, I, I like to watch these court programs on television. And uh, the, the guy says, so if you, have, if you have a dispute with someone, don't take the law into your own hands. Take him to court. The fact is that God does not resolve the problem of evil. By force, he takes the devil to court. The devil is condemned in a God's court of law. We're going to notice that. And that is the unique view of the Adventist church. It's, it's not held by any other church, and it's centered in the sanctuary. You know, David was envious of the, uh, very envious of the wicked. You read Psalm 73. He says, I was envious of the wicked until I entered your sanctuary. And then I understood their end. So we need to see uh, salvation within the context of the great controversy between good and evil. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. By the way, I have, I have a view that is shared by some. Who was that other cherub on the other side of the ark? Christ. 
Why was the devil envious of Jesus? He wasn't envious of God the Father. He was envious of Jesus. Why was he envious of Jesus? You read in the Spirit Prophecy, Ellen White says that, that the devil, that Lucifer, says, why should you favor him above me? Who do we have a tendency to find our rivals among? Do you, think that, uh, do you think that the president of the general conference is my rival? No, because, I, uh, because he's so far above in position than I am that there's really no basis for me to, to be envious of him. Who, who, would, who would I find my rivals among? Yeah, the, the, pastor, the pastor across town. Right? No, I don't. <laughs> but, but, you know, we have a tendency to find our rivals among those who are relatively equal to us, right? So, says, why, so why? And the whole dispute originated when God the Father, Ellen White says in early writings, when God the Father said uh, to Jesus, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. Ellen White says that the devil was filled with envy. That the Father included Jesus in the idea of creating man, and he did not include Lucifer. By the way, Jesus was already Michael the archangel before sin. What? Well, let's read it. Revelation 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Where? In heaven. Michael and his angels... Was Jesus already Michael back then? Yeah. Come on, was he? Yes. Of course he was. By the way, Michael is the archangel, right? Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So, do you have two military commanders here? Are there? Yes. Do they have their respective armies? Yes. Each have their angels, right? When Jesus returns, who does he return with? The Bible says that he returns with all of his holy angels. Here it says that Michael and his angels fought. So is Michael the same as the one who comes back with his angels? Yes. Of course. Verse 8. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. How many angels? A third. A third. Ellen White says almost half. So it's between a third and, a, and half. I'll read that statement to you a little bit later on. It's in your material, by the way. So must the arguments of Satan have been quite persuasive, at least superficially, of course. Did a lot of the heavenly beings buy his lies? They most certainly did. Did they think that really God was a tyrant? That his law was restrictive? And that if they accepted him as their leader, they would be truly free because they wouldn't have to do what they're told all the time? Yep. Same problem here on earth. Same problem. And we're coming to that now in a moment. But, you know... Is it clear in your mind what it, what it is that's happening in heaven? Let's summarize what we've studied. What was Lucifer's position? Covering cherub. 
Did he sin? What is sin? Transgression of the law. Did he sin alone? No. What did he try to sell? His lies about whom? About God. Uh, Was he successful in selling his lies? Yeah. A third? Perhaps almost half of the angels bought his lies. His lies about God, about God's character. And most of his arguments centered around the law of God. The law of God is restrictive. It takes away your freedom. God destroys those who don't obey his law. If you say no to him, he'll snuff you out. But if you accepted me, Lucifer says, you would all be free. I'd allow you to do what you want. You wouldn't have to obey any external law. Sounds pretty persuasive. The world buys it today. Most of the world buys it today. They say, oh, you Adventists, you're the ones who believe that you've got to keep the law. I'm under grace. As if the law was something bad, something evil, something that restricts your freedom, something that that, uh, creates bondage. The fact is, folks, that observing the law out of love for God is our greatest guarantee of freedom. How would you like to live in a world where there's no stealing, no adultery, no killing, no false witness, where everybody loves and respects God, where everybody treats their parents with respect, what kind of world would you have? Well, you would have a perfect world. So when the law of God is obeyed, what kind of a world do you have? A perfect happy world. But when you disobey the law of God, what do you have? A world that is filled with misery. But of course, we need to remember that God does not impose His law upon us. It has to come from the heart. Now let's, let's go to Genesis 3 and see the origin of sin on earth. The origin of sin on earth. This is really revealing. Do you know what the devil did on earth? He replicated what he did in heaven. If you want to know a little bit more about the methods that he used in heaven, how he argued against God in heaven, all you have to do is read the story of the fall on earth because the devil did exactly on earth what he did in heaven. And we just read that his angels, the devil and his angels were what? Were cast out to him and they came where? To the earth. Now, let me ask you, did God have a law that he expected Adam and Eve to obey in the Garden of Eden? Yes. One simple command. Don't eat. Yes. In in heaven, the angels didn't know that the law existed. Correct. They had no, but Lucifer came to the knowledge of the law probably when he broke or started to. Yes. That's true. The, the angels in heaven, because the law was written on their hearts, they weren't conscious, oh, there's a law in there, we have to keep it. No, because it was part of their fiber. It's only, it's, Ellen White says that it's only after Lucifer brought it to their attention that they realized that there was a law. Yes. Well, but they, they had this direct command, uh, but they weren't aware of the Ten Commandments as we know them. You know, adultery, murder, in a perfect garden. That's correct. That's right. 
But now, in that one commandment were really contained all of the principles of the Ten Commandments. In the one command were all ten. You say, how's that? Yes. Okay, I'll try and remember that. Okay, I have a, uh, remind me to do it because I have a hard time doing that. <laughs> Even if you tell me a hundred times, I have, I have uh, you know, I forget. Um, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. And notice this. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Who was that serpent? I was really saying, we just read it, didn't The ancient serpent, the devil and Satan. So it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What, what, is, uh, what is Satan? He's the master psychologist. What is he trying to do here by saying, God, So God said you can't eat of any, any tree of the garden, huh? Does he know that Eve is going to, is going to uh, correct his misstatement? Of course he does. What happens if somebody tells you something that's blatantly different than what somebody's told you? You say, no, that's not the way it is. That's what Eve does. The devil knows that if he says, God says you can't eat of any tree of the garden, Eve immediately is going to say, no, hold on. God said we can eat from all of them except this one. And now she's conversing with the devil. And when you start conversing with the devil, you're on dangerous ground. So it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, in that one command were contained all the principles of the Ten Commandments. You say, How's that? Well, when Eve ate from the fruit, did she steal? Yeah. Whose fruit was it? God. God. She stole, right? Uh, when Eve gave uh, the fruit to her husband and her husband ate, did death come into the world? Yeah. Thou shalt not what? Murder. Kill. How about bearing false witness? See, God said that we shouldn't eat it or even touch it. God hadn't said don't touch it. In fact, Ellen White says that the devil, uh, that, that Eve exaggerated what God had said to make a point. She said, God told us not to eat or even to touch it. And then Ellen White says that the devil plucked a fruit, the, the serpent plucked the fruit and put it in her hands. Said, you've touched it, are you dead? In fact, the serpent, Ellen White gives us a lot of insight. She says that the serpent said, you didn't know serpents could talk, right? No. Well, how do you think I learned to talk? She says, by eating of the fruit? Yeah, by eating of the fruit. Now imagine, if a serpent can learn to talk by eating from the fruit, just imagine what you can do. I mean, when you start arguing with the devil, you're lost. Because he has a lot more experience. And he has a much more, much keener understanding than we do. Now let me ask you, did Eve, uh, did Eve commit adultery, spiritually speaking? Did she choose a different lover? Yeah, your relationship with God is spoken of as marriage, right? Hmm. Did she dishonor her father? Did she dishonor her creator? Did she want, did she want to make herself God? You shall be as what? The devil said. 
Did she violate every principle of the Ten Commandments? Did she covet? Yes, in that one command were all ten. In principle. So the whole law was there. Yes. So did she sin before she actually made principles? Yes, because sin, sin is not wrong acting, then sin is wrong thinking. You see, we, as Adventists, we're experts in emphasizing that sin is wrong acting, and sin is wrong acting, but sin is, is a wrong attitude before it expresses itself in action. You say, how's that? Let me give you an example that Jesus gave. He says, you have heard in ancient times, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, don't sleep with another man's wife. But I say to you that whoever looks upon a woman to covet her has already committed adultery in his heart. So where did the adultery begin? When you slept with your neighbor's wife or when you coveted your neighbor's wife? So where do you have to deal with sin? Is sin in action or sin in the heart? And the solution is not to say, keep the law. See, God has to take out the sinful heart, and he has to put in a heart of flesh, and then he has to write his law there. And then you will delight to do his will, because his law is written in your heart. That's not legalism. Obedience is not legalism. Legalism is thinking that you can gain salvation by obedience. Now let's go back here. So the whole Ten Commandments in principle are contained there. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. That's not what God said. God said we can eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Did Eve know what the consequences of eating from the tree would be? Yes. Did she understand God's command clearly? Absolutely. But now notice verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God is a liar. That's slander? Well, now we know that they have salvation. Adam and Eve didn't fall with the rest of the wicked generations after. So, yes, they died, but no, they are going to have eternal life because of Christ's sacrifice. Oh, sure. Well, uh, the fact is, the devil, the devil is saying that you're gonna, not going to die in any sense of the word. Of course, Adam and Eve did not know what death was. They knew it was something terrible. Maybe God explained to them that death is uh, ceasing to exist. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us. But the fact is, the devil is contradicting what God said. Because God said that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. By the way, in Hebrew it says you shall die by death. 
as if there's any other way of dying. It means you will really, truly die, is what God is saying. He's being emphatic. Yes. But I think we're also told by Ellen White that had not Christ stepped into yes. that moment, they would have died. Right. When God said you will die, that's true. He was not lying. God, God would have destroyed them. That's they true. Would have been destroyed by sin, but but Jesus stepped in, and from the foundations of the world was the last right. Day. Right. We're going to come to the solution. That that's a very important point. We're going to come to the solution to all this mess. Now we're studying the mess. You know, the cosmic conflict that's involved here in heaven and on earth. But we're going to come to that. We're going to show that the reason they did not die that very day is because Jesus presented himself as a substitute. And by the way, that very day, Adam and Eve sacrificed, or Adam sacrificed probably two lambs. Because the Bible says that God took skins, plural, and covered the nakedness that had been caused by sin. So that very day, there was a death. It was the death of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. But it was the Lamb in promise. In other words, uh, the very moment that Adam and Eve, uh, that actually Adam sacrificed those Adam as the patriarch, well, had sacrificed those animals, at that very instant, Jesus was presenting himself before his Father, and he was saying, Father, I will pay. In other words, what was happening on earth was an earthly announcement of a heavenly event. And, you know, every time in the sanctuary that Jesus moves, there's an earthly announcement. You can go online to our, our website, Secrets Unsealed website. And uh, I have posted there the seminar that I presented here last year, but, you know, last year I only had half a seminar, so I wasn't able to present a lot of the material. The series is called Catching Up to Jesus. It's being broadcast on 3ABN now. And basically I show that every time that Jesus moves in the sanctuary there is a corresponding earthly event to announce it. When Jesus presented himself as the perfect lamb, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow, when he presents himself as a perfect lamb, the announcement is made by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus is about to die, you have a triumphal entry. Jesus entering on on that colt, you know. Whole Jerusalem is in turmoil. Of course, they misunderstand what he's going to do. At each stage, there's a misunderstanding, too. So people say, oh, Adventist Adventist church started with a disappointment. Duh. At each stage that Jesus moves through his ministry, there's a disappointment. John the Baptist was disappointed. He didn't even understand what he was preaching. And yet an angel came to him in, in prison and explained to him, Ellen White says, Isaiah 61 and some of the prophecies. Oh, now I understand the Messiah is going to have two stages. He wasn't going to come as king. He was going to come as a different kind of king. The triumphal entry. They were totally messed up on the kind of king that he was. The people who were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Less than a week later, let's crucify him. There's a small remnant that's faithful to God. They study the prophecies and then they understand afterwards. The day of Pentecost, same thing. The disciples say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They don't understand prophecy. Ten days before the day of Pentecost. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't get the point. Now he says, I'm going to heaven now. 
So during those 10 days, they studied the process. Oh, now we know what he's going to do. And the earthly announcement was made on the day of Pentecost. Tons of fire, a mighty rushing wind, an earthquake to announce what Jesus was doing in heaven. He was starting his intercessory ministry. 1844, you have the Millerite movement announcing. Of course, they were wrong about the event. So what's new? Nothing new under the sun. See, we're always catching up to Jesus. Jesus moves, you know, because he has a calendar of events. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. See, he had to die according to schedule. Pentecost had to take place according to schedule. 1844 had to transpire according to schedule. Jesus couldn't say, well, I'll wait till they catch up to me. No, he had a calendar. So he says, I'll go forward, and afterwards they will understand. Are you with me? Amen. So just because there was a... Don't let people intimidate you just because there was a disappointment that the Adventist church originated with. At each stage, there's been a disappointment. And God's people later catch up by understanding Bible prophecy. And by the way, it's not the majority who later understand. It's only a small remnant who later accept what Jesus is doing and understand fully what he's doing and enter that experience. Okay, let's go back here to Genesis 3. Here comes the, here comes the critical point. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What is the devil trying to do by saying you will not surely die? He's lying about God, but what is his purpose? Let's think of the devil as a psychologist. He's planting in Eve's mind a question. And let me tell you what the question is. God said that if we eat from the tree, we're going to die. Now you say that if we eat from the tree, we're not going to die. If we're not going to die, then why did God tell us that we are going to die? How many of you are with, are, are with me on that? Why, in other words, why did God lie to us? Is that the question that would come up? Of course. Does the, devil, does the devil have the answer as to why God lied to them according to his view? Of course. See, he plants the idea. He says, God has said that the day that you eat up, you're going to surely die. You're not going to die. So Eve says, well, then why did God say we were going to die? The devil says, I'm going to tell you now. I'm going to tell you. Verse 6. Here we come to the most important part of the passage, which reflects what happened in heaven. It says in verse 5, for God knows what does the word for mean he's explaining why God said that we're going to die right for God knows does God know something according to the devil that he doesn't want them to know hmm yeah for God knows in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened. Which means that at that point, their eyes were what? You can't open what is open. What is the devil saying to Eve? God wants you to render him what? Blind service. Are you with me or not? Yeah. No, I'm not. You're not? Uh, 
Yeah, you know, we're going to come to this good and evil part in a moment because the devil told them a, a, a partial truth when he said, you will know good and evil. What the devil was, was trying to tell them was different than what really happened. But we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. So it says uh, in verse 5, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So were their eyes shut up to this point according to what the devil is saying? Absolutely. And now notice this. By the way, what is the absolute authority of ethical decisions? For the Christian, what is, the, what is that that distinguishes right from wrong? The Word of God, more specifically what? The law of God. Is the law of God external to man? Is it an external standard that even if we didn't exist, the standard would exist outside of us? Sure. Are we to put our lives in harmony with that standard? Yes. Absolutely. In other words, the source of ethics is not inside, it is what? Outside, outside in God's law. He defines what is good and what is evil. But notice what the devil is saying here. He says, you will be like God in what sense? Knowing good and evil. What is the devil really saying here? You are a law unto yourself. Yes. That God is keeping privilege from them, that he's not to be trusted, and that they need to act on their own impulses. Uh-huh. Exactly. What the devil is saying, God has given you a law that you can't eat from the tree. What makes God think that he's so great that he can tell you what to do? To say that, that eating from all of the trees is good and eating from this tree is evil. What give, gives God the authority and the right to say that to you? You can reach the point if you disobey God, then you can know good and evil like God does without having to depend on God's definition of good and evil. By the way, that's postmodernism in the Garden of Eden. Isn't it? Yeah. Postmodernism is not a recent phenomenon. I would choose it over legalism. I would, well, <laughs> is there really such a thing as the lesser of two evils? You're going to hell. <laughs> accepting either of, the, either of them. You know, they're two, two extremes. Legalism or license. You know, what's preferable? There is no preferable option because both live in misery. You know, I'd rather be a sinner than a hypocrite. <laughs> both are going to be lost, right? I mean, if, you, if you're planning on being lost, you might as well, you know, live for now. Live it up. In, a, in, a, in a one sense. Yeah, but what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's just, it's just a little bit, you know, it's the temporary, what the Bible calls the temporary pleasures of sin. You know, sin can be pleasurable. Did you know that? Sin can be fun. I mean, you go to Las Vegas, those people look like they're having a lot of fun. They're losing a lot of money. Superficially. 
it looks like they're having a lot of fun, you know. But really, what they're doing mocks their soul because it doesn't satisfy the innermost needs of the human heart. So what is the devil saying here? Is he using the same argument that he used in heaven? Allow me to read you a few statements here from the Spirit of Prophecy. Very interesting statements. These are not these are not in your material. But I'll give you the reference so that you can look them up. Let's see, where are they? I hope I brought them. Okay, here it is. This is Great Controversy, page 495. Listen to this. 495. Working with mysterious secrecy. You read Ellen White's chapters on the origin of evil. She felt this was extremely important because she has a chapter on the origin of evil in Patriarchs and Prophets. She has one in Great Controversy. Uh, and she has a, a chapter on the origin of evil in early writings. In many of her, in, of her writings, she has a whole chapter on the origin of evil. She says, working with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under an appearance of reverence for God, he endeavored to excite dissatisfaction concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings. Intimating that they imposed an unnecessary restraint. Is that what he's telling Eve? That God's rule was an unnecessary restraint? Absolutely. Now listen to this. Since their natures were holy, he urged that angels should obey the dictates of their own will. He's saying to Eve, you know, you're holy, you know, you don't have to depend on what God tells you to be right or wrong. You know, you can know for yourself. She continues saying, he sought to create sympathy for himself by representing that God had dealt unjustly with him in bestowing supreme honor upon Christ. He claimed that in aspiring to greater power and honor, he was not aiming at self-exaltation but was seeking to secure liberty for all the inhabitants of heaven, that by this means they might attain to a higher state of existence. Is that what he's saying to to Eve? It's exactly what he's saying to Eve. In uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41, she says his power to deceive was very great, by disguising himself in a cloak of falsehood, he had gained an advantage. All his acts were so clothed with mystery that it was difficult to disclose to the angels the true nature of his work. 
until fully developed, it could not be made to appear the evil thing that it was. His dissatisfaction would not be seen to be rebellion. Even the loyal angels could not fully discern his character or see to what his work was leading. In other words, if God had destroyed Satan from the very start, the heavenly beings would have said, that's exactly what he said, that people who don't obey God, he snuffs them out. And then they would say, who's going to be next? We better line up. We better obey or he'll kill us. And so they would have served God out of what? Fear. So what did God say? God, God says, I'm going to allow the devil to develop his program on planet earth. So that the whole universe can see the fruit of living independently of my law. Where everybody chooses to be locked unto themselves. I'm going to allow the world to go that direction. Until finally, during the time of trouble, the, the, there will be a, such a scene of strife, Ellen White says, that the most vivid imagination cannot grasp. Can you imagine a world that is devoid of the Spirit of God? It's like the world before the flood, that every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. No safety anywhere. And of course... Yes, but the Spirit of God is still striving. You know, there's still good people in the world. There's still, the winds are still being held back. But, but when the Spirit of God is fully withdrawn from the earth, by the way, it's not withdrawn from God's people. It's withdrawn as an influence to bring people, to convert people to the Lord, because people have already made their decisions against the Lord. We, we can't even begin to imagine what the world is going to be like. And the whole universe, we're going to notice in the, in the second hour, the whole universe is going to be watching the fruits of Satan's lawless style of government. And this will be the inoculation of the universe. You see, God has allowed sin to transpire because he wants to inoculate, he wants to vaccinate the universe so that there will no longer be any possibility of sin, ever. What idiot would ever want to experiment with sin after seeing what sin did in this world? In other words, what the, God allowing evil is the vaccination of the universe, is what we're going to study as we continue. Now, um, let me read you just one. Well, it's time to take a break. So let's take a 15-minute break and then come back at uh, 10.45. And uh, I'm going to share with you several biblical texts on this cosmic controversy that Ellen White talks about. There's a lot in the Bible about this cosmic controversy. So hope to see you back. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com